0: Let me invite you to grab your Bibles and open up to the very beginning of them, Genesis chapter 1. I'm really excited about what we're stepping into tonight and what we're going to be journeying through together over the next several weeks, in part because I am a fan of origin stories. I'm a fan of origin stories, especially when they tell the stories of characters we've already been introduced to. I hear next year that uh, a Han Solo movie's coming out, pretty stoked about that, and hopefully we'll learn a little bit more about where he came from and how he w- made his reputation as a notorious smuggler before becoming a hero to the Republic, a, an origin story that I'm really looking forward to to hearing and seeing. and. And then there's also one coming out next year about the Joker from the Batman uh, DC comic series, right? Uh, that's one I'm interested to as well. I want to know how this guy, what events transpired, what choices were made, what, what propensities were in him that kind of led him to become as maniacal and as twisted as he is. And so the Joker story is going to be told next year. I'm really excited about that one. I, I'm a fan of origin stories. And I'm a fan of origin stories also uh, when they are told in a non-linear style those stories where you just kind of dropped in the middle of a plot and you're introduced to a fully formed character and. And through the use of techniques such as flashbacks, you're you're transpired to previous events and to previous moments to, to help put some of the pieces together so that you can come to a better understanding of why the situation in the story is the way that it is and why the character is perhaps acting the way that he's acting and making the choices that he's choosing. And you begin to see, and the more information you get in those flashbacks and in those other types of techniques like that, what's What happens is pretty interesting is that as a story unfolds, you become more attuned to what could happen in the future. You you can start anticipating where the plot is going and how things are going to unfold. I, I love origin stories. And that's the idea behind the new series we're stepping into tonight called Origins. We're going to take the next several weeks to study the first three chapters of the very first book of the Bible called Genesis. And we're going to look at these chapters because, quite honestly, these three chapters tell our origin story. Now, like you, when I was born into this world, I surfaced in a story that had been transpiring for ages. In fact, yesterday I celebrated my 37th birthday, September 2nd, 1980. That's when I showed up on this thing. And like you, you you have a moment in time, a moment in history where you showed up in this world and you found your place in the story of human history. And, And as you think about that, understand that if you're going to understand your origins, it's not sufficient for you to trace them back to your birthday. If you're going to really dive into who you are as a human being and what your life is to be about in the world that is, especially as you move towards the world that is to come, you have to go a lot further. You have to dig a lot deeper. You just can't go to your birthday. You have to consider yourself as part of the whole human story and the whole world that is, that is as we consider discovering our origins. And so when we do that, that's when we're, begin, we're able to ask and, and to some degree answer some of the most important questions that a person can ask, like how did life in this world get to be this way? Why are human beings the way that we are? Why do we do the things that we do? Why is the world as it is? Can we really engage this world in a meaningful way? Is there any hope for the future of this world and for the future of our lives? Is is there hope for humanity? Those types of questions cannot be answered by tracing your individual origin story back to your birthday. No, you have to go back to the very beginning You have to go back as far as you can. And here in Genesis chapter 1, from a Christian perspective, from a biblical perspective, we are cued into our shared origin story. And we're going to study these three chapters over the next several weeks in an effort to trace our origins in hopes to provide clarity on a few issues. In hope, as we study these chapters together, we're going to provide clarity on who God is as our creator And who God is as our redeemer. We're going to provide some clarity, God willing, on on who we are as divine image bearers. And what is our role as stewards of his creation. Hopefully we'll gain some clarity on how you and I are to relate to the world that is in anticipation of the world that is to come. As we journey through Genesis chapter 1, 2, and 3, we're doing so believing that if you and I are going to learn... How to faithfully navigate life outside of Eden. We need, to turn, we need to learn what life was like inside of Eden. We need to explore and discover what God originally intended in the very beginning of the story. And so that's what we're doing in Genesis chapter 1. And today we're going to dip our toe in just the first three verses and just explore some of these themes together. When you look at Genesis chapter 1, beginning of verse 1, you were told something huge, Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, one of the most popular, famous statements in all of the Bible. That verse, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, whenever that was, God created the heavens and the earth. And so in reading that verse, you're quick to discover that God is the subject of it, right? God is the subject. He is the one doing the creating at the beginning of the story. And what's interesting is that God's name, Elohim, that that majestic, powerful description of who God is as Elohim, the creator of the heavens and the earth, it shows up 35 times in chapter 1. 35 times you read about God creating and doing things to put the world and the cosmos in place. His presence saturates this poetic narrative that is Genesis chapter 1. And so we get into a passage like Hebrews chapter 11, verse 3, and we are cued into how all of this came into being from nothing. That God alone created something out of nothing. This is Hebrews chapter 11, verse 3. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. God created something from nothing. That's who God is as the powerful transcendent creator. And as you continue to journey through Genesis chapter one, you get into verse 26 and you get that famous phrase, then God said, let us make man in our image. He created human beings in his image. Now, what that means for us is we consider who God is as, as the one who brings something out of nothing, as the creator of the cosmos, the creator of the universe. Understand that creating is something only God can do. Only God can bring something out of nothing. He alone holds creative power. This is why that verb created is not used of any other person in the Bible. It's only used, its subject is only ever seen as God. He alone can create. But if you and I are created in his image, we might not possess creative power, but we do possess creative capacities we can interact with all that he has created and we can rearrange them to make things, to to showcase various aspects of life and truth and beauty. That's what we do with music. That's what we do with art. That's what we do with technological advancements and business developments. We try to take the raw materials of the created order and rearrange them in ways that would contribute to human flourishing. That's what we do. We do that as divine image bearers who've been given creative capacities. But we don't have creative power. That power alone belongs to God. He created the heavens and the earth. So there's a few things you want to note about that in light of this. One of which is that if God created everything, then that means he transcends everything. That he exists above and beyond everything that is. As the creator, he is transcendent. This is why you get that phrase in verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That phrase is technically called a merism, which means you take two opposite ends of a spectrum... You can join them together with a conjunction like and, and it's designed to cover everything. So to say God created the heavens and the earth means he created the entire cosmos. That's what we're getting after. So when it comes to relating to the creator, we're talking about someone very, very, very big. I mean, you just consider the scope of the cosmos as best as your finite and my finite minds can Perhaps you've read Stephen Hawking's a, a Brief History of Time, and in it he does better than most in trying to explain and describe the vastness of the universe, just how big the cosmos is. Listen to what he says about the universe. He says that our galaxy is an average-sized spiral galaxy that looks to other galaxies like a swirl in a pastry roll, and that it, and that it is over 100,000 light-years across, about 600 trillion miles He writes, we now know that our galaxy is only one of some hundred thousand million that can be seen using modern telescopes. Each galaxy itself containing some hundred thousand million stars. Now I can't even begin to fathom the vastness of that. But what I hold in faith in light of what I'm reading in the scriptures is that however big the cosmos is, God is responsible for every speck of it. He created the heavens and the earth. And so if you think the cosmos is big, your God is bigger. The creator transcends creation. He exists above and beyond the created order. But one of the things to say that, if we affirm that, if we say, okay, God created the cosmos, he created all that exists, then that also means that all that exists had a beginning. It had a starting point. And it's really interesting to read some of the things that physicists have been affirming for several decades now, but just especially when you get into the way the universe seems to be growing or expanding. Physicists say things like, well, they tell us that the universe is constantly expanding, and some estimates say that the most distant galaxy is 8 billion light-years away, but that it's still moving away, it's still expanding out at a rate of about 200 million miles an hour. The expansion of the universe is incredible, but what it says and what it seems to affirm is that the expansion of the universe, it it dispels any thought or theory or notion that the universe is eternal. The universe has not always existed. It has a beginning. It had a starting point. It was ignited. It was created. It was spoken into being by the creator. And so if, it ha- if it's expanding, then physicists say it must have had a starting point in some time in the past. And as it's doing so, it's reminding us that this universe that we inhabit isn't eternal. It is temporary. And there's a sense in which we can say if it had a beginning, it's going to have an ending. Things aren't going to be as they are now forever. The universe is not eternal. It is temporary. And so that's important for us to consider because you're going to interact with worldviews in this city, in this context, in this culture that will sometimes suggest otherwise. There's a worldview called pantheism, which believes that the universe is God, that it is deified. But if you believe in pantheism, you're essentially saying that the universe is eternal. But we know the universe isn't eternal, not just from the Bible, but from scientific discoveries as well. Then there are other worldviews, such as dualism, that say that God has forever existed, and the universe has forever existed, and the two have kind of ran parallel of each other for all eternity. But we, as those who subscribe to the scriptures, who believe in the creator, who created all that is, the God who created the heavens and the earth, we say the universe is not eternal, it is temporary. And that's important for us to consider because the God that we made, it, the God who made everything is the one who transcends everything because he alone is the eternal one. He alone is the sovereign one. And he transcends his creation. If God created the heavens and the earth, that means he transcends the creation the way an author would transcend a story that they're writing. An author who sits down with a pen and paper and writes a story, writes a narrative, writes a plot, they, they stand outside of that story. They're not really in the flow of the plot. They're outside of it. They transcend it. Well, this is how God relates to the created cosmos. He transcends the entire human story. So if you and I are going to talk about history, understand that we're literally talking about his story. We're talking about a God who's writing this thing, who's transcendent above time and space. This is who we're being introduced to in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. This transcendent creator who created the cosmos and he transcends the cosmos. Now, I'll go ahead and say this up front. We're going to dive into some themes tonight that, that might make your brain hurt. To think about. And, but you know that anytime your brain hurts, it makes your heart work a little more, right? Your heart starts swelling a little bit and beating a little faster. And so one of the reasons why we want to consider these things and, and think in ways that might cause our brain to hurt is because that will cause our hearts to swell. And one of the goals of Genesis chapter 1 is to consider how big our God is so that our hearts swell in awe of the Creator who transcends the cosmos. But here's the deal about him transcending all that exists. We're saying that God transcends both time and space. This is why you have in the beginning and the heavens and the earth both present in verse 1. God transcends time and space. You know this if you consider Psalm chapter 90 verse 2. When we're told before the mountain, before the mountains were brought forth or ever you had formed the earth and the world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Or from eternity to eternity, you are God. You transcend time. This means God has no birthday. That God himself has no beginning. He doesn't age. He doesn't develop. He simply is. That's what it means for him to be the transcendent creator. But not only does he transcend time, God transcends space. This means God doesn't have an address. You can't look him up and go visit him at one confined area in the universe. No, he transcends all of space. This is what you read in Acts chapter 17, verse 24. Listen to what is said there. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. Since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything, God transcends space. He doesn't have an address. He is, what we would say, everywhere present. And that is good news for our friends and families and others who are hurting in Houston and in Southeast Asia right now. Because God is everywhere present, he can be that ever-present help in time of trouble. It's very significant that we understand God transcends time. God transcends space. He doesn't have a beginning. He will not have an ending. God isn't confined to one specific corner of the universe. He is everywhere present as the transcendent, the transcendent creator. This is encouraging because it reminds us that God does not age. He does not get tired. He is not limited in any necessary way. Consider Isaiah chapter 40. Consider Isaiah chapter 40, verse 25. To whom then, the Lord says, will you compare me? To whom then will you compare me that I should be like him, says the Holy One. He's saying, I'm incomparable. I'm the transcendent creator. You can't look to any other person, place, or thing in the world and draw an analogy necessarily to me in that way. And he tells Isaiah, lift up your eyes on high and see. Who created these? He who brings out their host by number, referring to the stars in the sky, the heavens that you see when you look up. He says, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might. And because he is strong in power, not one is missing. Not only did he create the stars, God says, I've named the stars. He's named the stars in some kind of way. He's aware of every single speck in the cosmos. He's the, tr- the transcendent the transcendent creator. So we want to say, yes, the cosmos is big, but God is bigger. Yes, human history is long. The earth and the creation has been around for a long time, but God has been around for a lot longer. God transcends creation. And here in verse 1 of the first Words, the first sentence of the Bible, God is introducing himself to us. He's telling readers, hey, I want you to know I created you. I created you and I created everything around you. And so what this means practically for our lives is we consider not only just wanting our hearts to swell in awe of the bigness of God, the transcendence of the creator. We want to consider how God then determines the measure of our lives. If this is true, if God transcends time and space, this means he determines the measure of our lives in terms of time and space. Meaning, you are here now because you belong here. You were alive when you are alive because you belong here. God transcends time. So at whatever point you plop up on the plot line of human history, that's precisely when God wanted you to be here. And whatever space you occupy in this world, that is precisely the space God wants you to occupy. He transcends time and space. The when and the where of our lives is determined by the Creator. Therefore, how we use our time and our space in this world matters. How are we leveraging the time that we are given, whether our days be long or our days be short? How are we maximizing the space that you and I occupy? How are we leveraging time and space in reference to the creator? And so in order to answer that question, we have to explore not only the measure of our lives, but we need to jump into the meaning of our lives. If God transcends time and space, and if you are when and where you are for a reason, then how are you to use your time? How are you to occupy your space? What is the meaning of your life? And believe it or not, we're actually cued into some of these dynamics here in the first three verses of the book of Genesis. We discover how we are to fill out our time and space by considering that this transcendent God that is introducing himself to us in this passage, this transcendent God is also, and we discover this in far more clear details the further you go on in the Bible, but that this transcendent God is also a triune God. That this transcendent God is what Christians refer to as Trinity, one God who eternally exists in three persons. This is hinted at in verses 1, 2, and 3. It's hinted at when you look down to verse 26. Verse 26, there's that moment where God said, let us make man in our own image. That's baffled scholarship for for a long time, wondering who in the world is the us. Who's God referring to? I thought there was only one God. Well, looking at the scriptures from our vantage point, knowing the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, knowing the person of the Holy Spirit, we have a better understanding of who that us is. That that us refers to God as the triune creator. The Trinity, so to speak, meaning that the creator has eternally existed in a community of three, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so you look at verse 1 and you see the Father there, God creating the heavens and the earth. You see the Holy Spirit in verse 2, the Spirit of the Lord hovering over the face of the deep. The question then becomes, where's the son? Where's the second person of the Trinity? What do you do with that? And again, I told you that we're going to be stretching our brains here tonight. And to answer that question, I want to take you to a verse that I believe actually precedes Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. Now, in the, in the sequence of the scriptures, Genesis 1-1 is the first verse of the Bible. But John chapter 1 verse 1 actually pre, precedes theologically Genesis chapter 1 verse 1. Check it out. Beginning in John 1-1. Listen to this passage Jen read for us a moment ago. There we read, in the beginning was the what? Was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Get this. All things were made through Him. And without him was not anything made that was made. The word of God present there, the second person of the Trinity. And we know in John chapter 1 that later in verse 14 that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. That's the man Christ Jesus. That's the one Jesus of Nazareth who lived in human history. Who confined himself to time and space. Who limited himself for our good and for the glory of the Father. That's the word. That's the second person of the Trinity. And so you go back to the beginning of the Bible, you see God the Father creating. You see the the Spirit of God hovering. And then verse 3, you see God speaking. Let there be light, and there was light. The word through which the world was created. God the Son present there in the very beginning of the Bible. And so what does that mean for us except... That if God determines the measure of our lives by transcending time and space, determining when and where we would live and exist in this creation, we want to look, consider the nature of who God is to discover the meaning of life, to discover why we exist, what is life supposed to be about. And to get a cue on that, we want to consider the makeup of the Trinity. If God has eternally existed in that capacity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, John chapter 17 would tell us that each person of the Trinity lives to glorify the other. That each person of the Trinity lives to honor the other and to defer to the other. They orient themselves towards the other. So really what you see in the makeup of the Trinity, the the deepest nature of who God is, you see persons giving themselves to others. What you see in the makeup of the Trinity is love. This is why John would write later in 1 John, God is love. That is his nature. That is who he is in his deepest essence. God is love. And so if you want to think about the meaning of your life, and if we are created in the image of God, if God determines the measure of our lives, and he provides meaning to our lives, Do you see how who God is gives shape to what we are to be about in this world? Meaning your life, the time and the space that you occupy in this world is not for you. The time and space you are given in this world is for others. That your life isn't to be lived in an effort to acquire power and to acquire prominence. Life in this world isn't about your personal accomplishments. Life in this world is about interpersonal relationships. It's about self-giving. It's about nurturing relationships of love. That's the meaning of our existence. So we want to use the time we're given and the space we're given to nurture interpersonal relationships of self-giving love. This is the meaning of life, so to speak, if we consider who the creator is and what God is all about. What this also means is that God is Trinity. This means that when he created us, he did not create us out of necessity. And since he didn't create us out of necessity, we know that journey, we did not use our time and our space in a way where we are entitled, believing that we're entitled to certain things. No, we don't exist out of necessity. God did not make you because he was lonely. God did not make me because he was bored. God created us out of the overflow of his love. You might think of creation as a canvas upon which his love just spilled out and spilled over, bringing in the created order, bringing in the life that you see and experience right now, this life that was created by love and that is intended to be used up in the purpose of love. So the measure of our lives is determined by our transcendent creator, And the meaning of our lives is to live lives of love, self-giving. And if you want to know what paradise looks like, you want to know what life in Eden was like before sin came in and ruptured everything and Adam and Eve kind of lived for themselves, paradise looks like everyone living for the good of those around them. You want to know what paradise looks like in your home? Well, it's when the husband lives for the welfare of the wife. And the wife lives for the welfare of the husband. When they give themselves in love to each other selflessly, considering the other more significant than themselves, being other oriented, that's when paradise blossoms in the home. That's when paradise blossoms in parenting. That's when paradise blossoms in our social circles. When we see ourselves in a community of people where everyone is giving themselves to the other. And nobody is clinging to themselves. They're giving of themselves. When that happens, that's when harmony is created. That's when order is restored. That's when life happens. That's when meaning is fulfilled. C.S. Lewis would put this very well in his book, mere christianity he it's a, it's a heavy quote but it's a good one i don't want to unpack it for us he says this he says in self-giving love we touch a rhythm not only of material creation but of all being for the eternal word jesus christ gives himself in sacrifice but when he was crucified he only did in the wild weather of his outlying provinces That which he had been doing at home in glory and gladness from before the foundation of the world, he gave of himself. That's what he's getting after. He says, The Son glorifies the Father, and the Father glorifies the Son. So, from the highest to the lowest, self exists to be abdicated. That means self exists to be dethroned, to be decentralized. Self exists. To be dislodged. But listen to what he says next. He says self exists to be abdicated. And by that abdication it becomes more truly self. This is when you become who you were created to be. This is when life's meaning starts to show itself in you. When you dislodge yourself from the center of your reality. And you're no longer living to get. You're living to give. That's what love does. That's what love is. That's who God is. A God of self-giving love who's created us with the capacity to give ourselves in love to him and to each other. And then he would go on to say, get this, this is not a lot from which we can escape. He says the only thing outside the system of self-giving is hell. You want to know who occupies hell? It's people who refuse to give of themselves in love to the creator and in love to one another. Why else do you think when Jesus was asked the question, what's the most important commandment in all of the law, that he would summarize it in the language of love? He's asked, what's most important? What do I really need to focus on? And Jesus says, well, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all your mind, and with all of your strength. Give yourself to the creator. And love your neighbor as yourself. Give yourself to others. Self-giving love, that's the meaning of life. That's when we become our true selves. That's when we become who God originally intended us to be. And when we find ourselves giving ourselves in these kinds of ways, that's when heaven shows up on earth. That's when God's kingdom comes and his will is done on earth as it is in heaven. So we have the measure of our lives, time and space. You see the meaning of our lives traced all the way back to the origin of creation. The meaning of our lives, self-giving love. But then that brings us to one last dynamic that we want to focus on. If God determines the when and the where of our lives, and if he determines kind of the why, you know, self-giving love, then the question for me is, is how? How do you grow in that capacity? How do you really give yourself in love to God and to others? And this is where you go a little bit further in the passage and you move from verse 1 on into verse 2 and, and you read what's described there. Listen to what's said. It's a weird dynamic. It's, it's mysterious to say that in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Then you read verse 2 and there seems to be a problem. Because in verse 2 you get this picture of primordial chaos, so to speak. The earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep. Something doesn't seem Right? Now, this is quite mysterious. It's hard to put these pieces together squarely. There are some who say, well, there must be a gap between verse 1 and verse 2. When God created the heavens and the earth, and then something bad happened, and then verse 2 kind of describes a situation that needs to be fixed. And so they would say in this gap, that's when Satan rebelled against God and he fell down from heaven. And when that happened, it disrupted things. This is why the serpent shows up in Eden and he's present there. It's kind of like, where'd you come from, right? Thought God created everything perfectly the first time. What's wrong with this? And so some would say it's a gap and there's credence to that. Others would say, well, it's not so much a gap as much as verse one represents a summary of God's creative activity. And then verse two He's moving in that direction, but he's doing it in a sequence that's designed to instruct us on something very important. One of the things you and I got to realize as we read through Genesis 1 over the next couple of weeks is, is that it's designed to do two things. Genesis chapter 1 is designed to inspire your worship, to cause your heart to swell in awe of the God who made you and made everything else. But then at the same time, Genesis chapter 1 is designed to instruct us on the way of wisdom or to instruct us on how we are to live our lives. The first people to read Genesis chapter 1 was the Israelites who were redeemed from the darkness of Egyptian slavery. So God redeemed them from Egypt. He was bringing them into the promised land. And there comes a moment where they're at Mount Sinai. God speaks to Moses. Moses relays God's word, which comes most notably in the form of the Ten Commandments. And then you step into Genesis chapter one and you find 10 moments where God says, God says, God says, paralleling that saying, look, this word that you're hearing, it comes from the one who not only created you, but it comes from the one who redeemed you. And he's giving you his word to live by. He's giving you his word to give shape to the disorder of your life in a fallen world. So Genesis chapter 1 is designed on one hand to inspire worship, and then on the other hand it's designed to infuse wisdom as we find our lives being shaped and formed by God's Word. And so what I think is going on in verses 1 and 2 when you make that move is that God is giving the Israelites a picture of His recreating activity, a picture of His redemption. We are learning that the God who created everything is the same God who will redeem everything. And you get into the story of the Bible and what happens. God creates, things run pretty good, Genesis 1, Genesis 2. Then in Genesis 3, things go south. Things go haywire, and you find the world the way that it is now. It's broken and bewildering, and you wonder, well, is there any hope for the world? Yes, there is hope, but that hope can't be found in you. It must be found in God. That the one who created everything, although sin and humans will ruin everything, God's going to fix everything. And that means the Bible is utterly different from a vast majority of religious systems that you read about and you hear about in this world. Most religious systems say, okay, God created everything good or whatever, God's created everything good, human beings kind of ruined and wrecked everything, then it's up to human beings to fix everything, to redeem everything. But the story of Genesis is different. The story of Genesis, God created everything, declared it good. Sin ruptured everything, brought chaos and disorder into the world. But who's going to fix it? Who's going to redeem it? Not you, not me. God is. The creator is the redeemer. That's the point of verse 1 and 2. And he redeems through his word. He redeems the formlessness and the void caused by sin in our lives by speaking by bringing order through his word to us. In other words, he steps up onto the horizon of our lives and he says, let there be light and there is light. He does for each and every one of his children what he did in creation. He steps onto the the horizon of our lives seeing things dark and disorderly and he speaks light, He he speaks order, he speaks harmony, he speaks redemption. And we know this because you get into 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6, and what do you read? This is exactly what Paul is telling us about the gospel. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6, listen to what it says. It says, For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, a quote from Genesis chapter 1, verse 3, let, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That the God who created everything is is the same God who will redeem and recreate and restore everything. So I don't know what type of void you fill in your life right now. What type of emptiness and disorder is in you right now as a result of sin. And you're wondering, well, how is order and harmony going to be restored? Is peace available? Is light available? Is truth available here at the very beginning of the story? The answer to that question is absolutely yes. It comes through the word. This word that took on flesh and dwelt among us. This word who lived a life of utter obedience, deferring to his father in every moment of every day, honoring his father. This word that took on flesh and deferred to those around them in the sense that he gave himself in love to every person he interacted with. This word that brought order into the chaos of the first century when he stepped onto the scene and and he began to heal the sick. He began to cast out demons. He began to raise the dead. He began to do what? Walk on water. This word that took on flesh and did everything for people that people could not do for themselves. He's saying if you want order, you want harmony, you want redemption, it's found in the word. It's found in the one who lived and died and rose again. And so what do we do? What do we do with our lives? Well, you recognize that you were created for a reason, that the time and the space that you occupy is determined by the creator. You recognize that you were made for, that life is about self-giving love. Life is about interpersonal relationships, not personal accomplishments. It's about giving of ourselves, not gaining for ourselves. That's what life is about. And then you wonder, well, can I really do that? Can that happen in me? Well, you take in the word. You let God who gave himself for you in Jesus, you let that self-giving love come into your life by believing it, by receiving it, by trusting it. And then you let that word do the work of reordering your life so that you can be kind of inverted, so that you can be transformed from the inside out, so that you're loving God, giving yourself to him in obedience and faith and trust and humility and giving yourself for the good of those around you in love in service and sacrifice. This is what life is about. This is what our origins teach us the measure of our lives, the meaning of our lives, the method or the manner or the how of our lives, all of which centering on this person named Jesus who lived and died and rose again, this one that we're feasting on and worshiping and being loved by so that we can love him and love others in return. And so as we journey through Genesis chapter 1, my hope and my prayer is that that dynamic, those big truths that we've introduced ourselves to tonight, that those big truths would become, that they would give shape to the lives that we live in the here and now. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I come before you asking that your Holy Spirit be our counselor over these next few moments. I pray that you would help us to process these truths, to consider these realities, and help our hearts to respond to them in appropriate ways. Thank you, God, for loving us enough to create us and to redeem us, to make us and to remake us. Thank you, God, for that. Thank you, God, for loving us so well that we might slide into a meaningful existence. And so I pray that you would give us grace now to prioritize self-giving love, to prioritize interpersonal relationships above every other thing in the world. God, you made us with the capacity to love in this way. Would you please fill out that capacity for us in Jesus' name? Amen.